Well, good morning, church. I hope you guys are doing well this morning. It is an honor to be in front of you. Uh, if you would please find your Bibles and open to Exodus 32. We've been going through Exodus for a while, and we're close to wrapping it up. But we are about to hit a point in the book where it seems like everything is about to come undone. Everything we've been reading about um, is, is about to be uh, thrown out. And Israel is about to get itself into some serious trouble. What we've been establishing for the past couple months is this idea of God's holiness. It's a term that we use, but sometimes can be difficult to define. But it's this idea of God's otherness. Uh, this idea that he is different than us, that he is sacred. And what's going to become abundantly clear from this passage, and probably it's clearest yet, is that we are none of those things. And what we're about to see is probably the clearest picture of our sinful nature. One of the clearest pictures of how unlike God we really are. And as we go through this chapter, right, our, our eyes should open wide, our jaws should drop, we should be pulling our hair out, our skin should crawl, our blood should boil. And the reason we should feel this way is, is going to become clear as we move forward. But what's important to keep in mind for Israel is they really had one job. Right? Uh, some scholars estimate that they had just been given the Ten Commandments about a month prior to this incident. So about a month ago, they were given really 10 rules to follow, 10 things to do uh, to help their relationship with God. So in about a month's time, the Israelites had managed to screw up the single most important job in the world. They had managed to uh, really, really just throw that out. And as we move forward, that's going to become clear to you guys. But this chapter reminded me, it's, it's a little bit like those memes that you may or may not be familiar with. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with those you had one job memes, right? You had one job, right? And it's, it's something that's kind of like, oh, my gosh, that was so simple. And we poke fun at these people who are responsible for one thing, but they can't get that done. And that's kind of what this is like, but also not really at all. Uh, but it reminded me of a story from years ago. <laughs> Thank you. Um, years ago when I was part-time student ministry, uh, I decided to get a second job um, and I did that at Raising Cane's. And it was a simple job, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was simple because there's not a lot of customization, right? If you come to Cane's, you're going to get chicken fingers, fries, and toast, right? That's, that's what you're going to get. And so when you're in the kitchen making this stuff, you know what every person's going to order, really. And our manager liked to encourage us with that fact. And uh, during dinner and lunch rush, he would walk around uh, the kitchen screaming, guys, it's just chicken fingers and fries. Just get it done. And we're like, yeah, but come on, man. Like, we're getting slammed over here. Well, simple enough, right? Chicken fingers, fries, and toast, right? Simple? Not really, because when you throw coleslaw in, it just, like, it jacks up the whole system. <laughs> right? We, we are incapable of doing things in that kitchen when, when people... Uh, order coleslaw. <laughs> and I remember one night, this is not a commentary on the coleslaw, but I remember one night, it was dinner rush, right? It was probably Friday night, Saturday night, super busy. And if you've ever worked in the kitchen, you know that Friday night and Saturday night dinner rush are the busiest and most important times in the kitchen, right? Everything is chaotic. Everything is awful. 
Everyone is screaming at everyone. Food is flying around. No one has any idea what's going on. And on top of that, we had managers that would come in and say, oh, I'll help you guys out. And he somehow makes it worse. <laughs> if, you ever, if you've ever been in, in the food industry, and you know when the manager comes out, it's like, oh, things are about to get a lot worse um, because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, this is a side note, but I, I just, I had to vent for a second. I had a manager, not the main manager, but I had a manager who would stand behind us with a stopwatch and uh, he would time us to, on how long it took us to do certain things. So he'd, he'd be there, you hear it click, 15 seconds on toast, not good. <laughs> and it's like, ugh. And, and I've never more in my life wanted to punch someone in the face. <laughs> but either way, uh, getting back to the main point of, of why I'm telling this story. It was dinner rush one night. I was on what's called board, so I'm assembling plates, right? I had a whole system down. Um, I get the tray, I get the paper, right? Chicken fingers, fries, boom, toast, shh, send. Chicken fingers, fries, toast, boom, right? And, I, and we're in the weeds, right? We're totally getting slammed. Orders are coming in faster than we can get them out. And I go to make a plate, chicken fingers, fries. Go to reach for toast. There's no toast. So I do what we're supposed to do. I call out, toast. All right, I'm going to make another plate, chicken fingers, fries. Toast. No response. And so I look down the line, and I see uh, the lady, God bless her, the, the teenager, um, who was on toast, and she's on her phone. And I was thinking, I was like, you're on toast. <laughs> we call your job toast because your job is to make the toast. Your sole responsibility is to make sure that there's toast available for us. If you were responsible for other things, your job would be called toast and other things, but it's called toast. <laughs> and so we were mildly behind. It was a huge inconvenience because toast girls did not make toast. <laughs> she had one job, and she just she totally screwed it up. Similarly, but in a much more serious way, Israel is about to screw up. It's not as serious as being out of toast. Not as serious as being out of toast. It's, it was a real thing. It was a, I have stories. If you want to hear stories about Kane's Kitchen, come find me. Uh, and we're going through this chapter, and what we're going to see is this common thread of sin. And sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal because God is holy. And what I hope to show you is that this chapter is going to reveal things about sin, and in turn, it's going to re reveal things about us. And these things are not great. Uh, they're going to sound pretty grim and pretty bleak, but there is good news and there is hope. But before we get there, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump into our message this morning. Join me in prayer. Father, we are, we are grateful for your love. We're grateful for the way that you serve us for the way that you have lavished your love on us through your son. And Father, I pray this morning that as I bring your word, Father, you, you would be the focal point. Father, I pray that uh, attention would be drawn to you. Father, that uh, we would see what is in our hearts and just how serious sin is and how your son remedies that for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I hope that you have found Exodus chapter 32 in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1. Uh, things start off really, really poorly right off the bat. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So right off the bat, verse 1, things take a very, very bad turn for the worse. Israelites have spent months, probably years with Moses, witnessing his leadership, watching God work through him, listening to his messages, seeing these miracles that God did through him. And all of that is about to be undone when they notice that Moses hasn't come down from the mountain. They're probably assuming that Moses is dead, so they do the logical and reasonable thing, and they say, hey, make us new gods. And so they go to Aaron And they say, hey, we need some new gods because we don't know what happened to Moses. He was our point person on this. And so they make the God, but then don't miss the language here. Make us a God who shall go before us. This is an incredibly bold, bold statement that would have been a slap in the face to the Lord. God is the one that goes before them. God is the one that has continually promised his presence and shown his faithfulness. And yet here they are making an idol for themselves out of gold. And the audacity doesn't stop there. Notice uh, that they are using jewelry, rings, earrings, and so on to make this golden calf. These were items that were meant to be given to the building of the tabernacle. Instead, they give them over to make a cheap replacement. They take those things and they melt them down and they turn them into a calf. Take a look at verse 4. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And the significance of this calf cannot be understated. The calf was a common idol image in the ancient Near East. There was a high chance that they would have seen this image a lot during their time in Egypt. They spent uh, nearly 400 years in Egypt probably over 400 years, hearing spiritual stories, learning their literature, being exposed to their gods, and probably adopting worship of those gods. This calf would have been incredibly familiar to them. And this choice is significant. We'll get into this in just a little bit. But it's important to note that they made a calf out of the items that were supposed to be used for the tabernacle. They continue down this path of debauchery. Look at the last part of verse 4. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not only have they built an idol, not only have they said, this is the God that will go before you. Not only are they taking away building materials that were meant for the tabernacle, but now they're attributing acts and miracles of God to the idol. Then the next morning, they bring offerings to the idol. They eat, they drink, they rise up to play around the idol. This part of the narrative is astounding. It's incredibly, in this incredibly short amount of time, the Israelites have managed to create an idol, build an altar, create a festival for worship, and get everyone to participate in worship of that idol. Not only is this incredibly blasphemous, but this might be the most efficient committee in the history of God's word. Right? And it just goes to show that we really don't need any help being jacked up people. We really don't need any help being sinful. Now, not only is this part of the narrative astounding, but it's incredibly revealing. It shows us what our hearts are. 
and what our hearts can do. None of this happened by accident. Despite what Aaron's amazing excuse is, and we'll get to that in just a little bit, none of these acts by the Israelites were unrelated. These events transpired because they turned away their, their hearts from the Lord. They let their hearts do what it does best, and that's wander and stray from God. So, sin reveals our hearts. And sin reveals a couple things about our hearts. First, our hearts worship what they know. As I said before, this golden calf was not a random choice. This was a very common idol in the area during this time. The Israelites likely would have seen this image everywhere, and it would have been a familiar thing for them. The Israelites' comfort level and their natural disposition was to take something that they knew, something that they could create, something that they could control, and worship it. The reality here is that we do the same thing. Our hearts daily lead us down a path of things, of worship, of things that are familiar, things that we want to control, things that we know. We worship what we expose ourselves to. We worship what we surround ourselves with. Now, I could stand up here, name a long list of idols and sins, but here's what you need to ask yourself. Where do you spend your time? Where does your money go? What do you think about in your free time? Where does your mind go as you're trying to fall asleep at night? What do you talk about most often? What's significant is they took the idol and they just kind of added it to their shelves of God. Take a look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, shall be a feast to Yahweh. Now notice how they still recognize Yahweh. They still like, hey, we kind of want that guy, but we also want this, because this is something that's familiar to us. They just add a little bit of Jesus to their life, and they're good to go. I think far too often we do this. We worship the things that we know. We add it to our shelf of gods and say, hey, we're good. Jesus is up there. He's got his place. Secondly, what it reveals about our hearts. Our, our hearts can make an idol out of anything. While almost none of us have constructed a golden calf for worship, this part of the narrative is relatable. Our sinful hearts are capable of incredibly powerful acts. And we have the ability to make an idol out of almost anything. Hobby, activity, status, person, object, thought, ambition, goal, task. All of those can easily become golden cast for us. The theologian John Calvin once said, Our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts can produce unfathomable amounts of idols. But here's the thing about our hearts. They will produce what they are fed. Factories can only produce what is brought in. So what are you putting into your heart? What company are you keeping? What media are you consuming? What are you putting in front of your eyes, in your ears, in your mind? Our hearts worship what they know, and our hearts can make an idol out of anything. And finally, our hearts want to be away from the Lord. Our heart's natural direction is away from God. 
Uh, there's a common motto amongst people today that you've probably heard. Follow your heart, right? Listen to your heart. And for me, that is the wrongest thing that I've ever heard in my life. In fact, it's so wrong that I had to make up a word to describe just how wrong it is. It's so easy for us to lose focus and lose steam in our walks with Jesus. It's so easy for us to, to get off track with our Bible reading plan and, and, and to lose steam when we're, when we're praying. It's why Jesus described the spiritual disciplines as disciplines. They take work. They take effort. It's why Jesus warns us about pursuing God. That it takes something within you. It's not just going to come naturally. But what our hearts really want is to be away from the Lord, to run from God. Uh, we're going to skip this next section. We'll circle back. But if you would, please jump down to verse 15. So sin reveals our heart, but sin also reveals our debt. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. So Moses comes off the mountain. He starts hearing shouting. He's, he's hearing people um, partying, if you will. And upon figuring out what, go, what, what is going on, right, he has the Ten Commandments in his hands. They were gifts to us. They were the most valuable thing on earth at this time. He realizes what's going on. And take a look at verse 19. Moses takes the one thing that is so precious and so special, and he smashes them to pieces. As soon as he sees for himself the sin that Israel has gotten itself into, he takes those things and he smashes them to pieces. That should be a clear signal on just how severe this sin is. Israel was making an idol was no small event. It was not a speed bump, and it certainly wasn't just an honest mistake. It was an incredibly egregious sin. They had broken the covenant. They had taken their relationship with God, and they spit on it. This would almost certainly be like the groom committing adultery at his own wedding reception. It was that short of a time. He smashes the, the tablets to pieces. Take a look at verse 20. Moses then takes the idol. He burns it to ashes. He takes the gold. He melts it down. And he puts it in the Israelites' water supply thus turning it into the only thing that he sees fit for an idol, human waste. Moses then confronts Aaron in verse 21. Moses calls what they did a great sin. And Aaron says something very important in verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. He says, not, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. Aaron basically says to Moses, dude, what did you expect? This is what we do. This is who we are. Did you really think things wouldn't go this way? It lets us know that even Aaron knew what was in our heart and what our hearts truly want. But then get this, I love this. This is like the best part in the entire book. Not really, but uh, Aaron Right, thinking on his feet, very quick thinker, just like myself, tries to justify his actions. Take a look at verse 23. Aaron says, dude, I know this seems really bad, but you were gone for a really long time. This is your fault, kind of. And then 
right? He starts to scramble some more. He probably, I imagine, the, the look on Moses' face, like, really? And then he's like, all right, let me think of something else. And apparently so befuddled, he continues to have his foot in the mouth, and he gives simultaneously the world's best and worst excuse that I've ever seen. He goes, uh, I don't know. I just I threw the gold in, and a calf came out. It was really weird. Like, you should have seen it. I didn't do anything. I just put it in the fire, and, and a calf came out, right? I mean, this, this is the excuse that my four-year-old son does when my two-year-old daughter's crying, right? They'll, they'll go off and they're playing. All of a sudden, I hear her crying. Levi, what happened? I don't know. She, she fell, and she started crying. Did you push her? No, maybe. <laughs> then Moses decides that something has to be done. Something like this needs a response. Take a look at verses 25, and 27, 25 through 27. And then Moses saw that the people had broken loose. For Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. So what Moses does is he draws a line in the sand. He says, you're either for God or you're against God. You're either in this camp or this camp. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, sometimes this, well, sometimes that. You pick a side. It's for the Lord or it's against the Lord. And those that are for the Lord must go through the camp slaying family, neighbors, and friends. So they go through and they slay people that they knew and loved people that they were close with. 3,000 people died that day, and Moses declares a blessing over those people. And so here's what this section shows us. Sin is serious. Sin is gravely serious. Our sin creates a debt that must be settled. There must be payment for our sin. When we sin, when we disobey the Lord and go against his commands, we are accruing debt daily. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The debt that we are racking up cannot be settled with a check, cannot be settled with donations, community service, or any kind of good deed. Our debt can only be settled through one means, and that is death. Sin is so egregious that it requires one's life. The payment that you owe to the Lord for your sin, even if it was just once, even if you didn't mean to and you said you were sorry right away, it requires your life. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. No matter how small we may view our sin, no matter how many, how many times we may justify it, sin is incredibly significant in God's eyes. And our debt against a holy and perfect God can only be settled really in one of two ways. And praise the Lord for offering a second way. We can eternally pay for our sins away from the presence of the Lord, or we can have someone take our place. And if we opt for someone taking our place, that replacement can't be just anyone. We have a need. We have a need for someone to stand before a holy God in our place and offer up himself. 
So let's take a look at what sin reveals and how Moses points to something greater. Third, sin reveals our need. The day after 3,000 Israelites fell, Moses tells the remaining people that maybe he can go to God. He says, yeah, that was really bad. 3,000 people lost their lives that day, and that was really bad, and I'm sure it was really hard for you, but it's not enough. I have to go to the Lord, and maybe we can work something out because this was a really, really bad thing that happened. Sin demands a high payment, and Moses knows that the price that we pay is not sufficient, nor is it ideal. So Moses goes up on the mountain, and look at what he offers, verses 31 through 32. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. That you have written. Moses offers up his life. He says, I know these people are sinful, stiff necked, and just plain awful, but please, God, forgive them. But if, if you can't, if that's not possible, take me, take my life, separate me from you so that you can forgive their sins. And he says, Not them, but me. Really think and reflect on what's going through Moses' mind, the selflessness, the humble spirit, and the great love that he must have had for Israel. And then God answers him. Moses offers up his life. Take a look at verse 33. God says something super significant that I do not want you to miss because this is, this is so crucial. But then the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Whoever has sinned against me. God's response is so theologically important that I don't want you to miss it. He says, you weren't involved. That wasn't your sin. That was theirs. They need to pay the price, not you. God says payment for sin must be done by the one who sins. And what this shows is that all of us being sinners, all of us having made mistakes, must stand before a holy God and watch him blot us out of his book. Stand and watch him enact his perfect justice. And we cannot escape this payment. We cannot run from our sin. Nor can we try to balance out our sin with doing good. We are responsible for our sin. The only one that can offer up payment for your sin is you. It sounds pretty grim, right? It sounds pretty bad. It sounds pretty hopeless. But there's good news. And actually, this is the best news ever, is that someone has offered up their life for you. Someone has taken on your sin for you. Someone has taken the worst thing about you. And in exchange, they give you the best thing about them. Really unbalanced trade here. But the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, came down to earth in human form. He lived a perfect life and obeyed in every way that we couldn't. He offered up his life for us. He stood in our place and he said to God, not them, but me. And then God, in, his, in a great act of his love and justice, placed our sin on him, fulfilling verse 33 by taking our sin and laying it on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did what Moses couldn't. Moses was just a man. The only price that he could pay was his sins. But Jesus, being both God and man, can offer up payment for everyone who trusts in him. To everyone in this room, you have a mediator. You have someone that prays for you like Moses did in that section of verses that we skipped. You have someone that stands before God and says, not them, but me. You have someone that loves you enough to take your place and offer up his own life for you. This chapter of Exodus is incredibly interesting. And what I've learned from reading the Bible, reading commentaries, is that oftentimes when the Bible describes horrific events like this, really sinful stuff, really bad things that happen, they don't name people that are involved. You will notice no names in the story except Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, key figures. And the Bible does that because it wants us to place ourselves in those specific stories, to understand that we are capable of these things just like Israel. In church, it's really easy to sit here and shake our heads and say, God, you guys are, you guys are a bunch of numbskulls. I can't believe you did that. If that was me, I never would have done that. But here's the truth. This is us. Exodus 32 is us every second of every day. Manufacturing idols, worshiping idols, straying away from the Lord. Our hearts, our hearts are prone to wander and stray. Our hearts are susceptible to idols. And the sinful nature inside of all of us is so large, but we underestimate it so often. And at the heart of sin, we, sin, we see sin for what it is and we see ourselves for who we are. We have a heart that is prone to wander and stray. We, have, we owe a debt that we cannot possibly afford. And we have a need for someone to stand before God on our behalf. But what I want you to understand, church, and, and this is my parting thought with you, as great as your sin is, God's love is even greater. As jacked up as you think you are, take rest in the fact that you are far more sinful than you could possibly realize. And God's love for you is greater than you could possibly realize. And waiting to stand in your place as an advocate, a mediator, an intercessor, and a friend. If you'd like to know more about this person, please come find one of our staff members, one of our elders, uh, someone that you trust, and ask them about this Jesus. Ask them about the person that has stood in your place before God.